The following is a conversation with Robert Stickgold. He is a professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Sleep and Cognition. He authored and co-authored more than 400 papers, mostly on the nature and function of sleep and dreams, with an emphasis on the role of sleep and dreams in memory consolidation and integration. Recently, he wrote the book, When Brains Dream, together with Tony Zadra, which I can highly recommend reading. So, enjoy. So, I'll start right off the bat, like, why do we dream? We dream because it's one of a series of evolved mechanisms that allows us or our brains to basically review the events of our day, the memories that we form during the day, and figure out what to do with them. It's really easy to form a memory. I used to have an Apple II Plus computer with 48K of memory. That's 48,000 bytes of memory. And it could record anything I typed. It could record anything that came in through a microphone. It could record static photographs that I scanned. But if I asked it what it meant, it had no idea whatsoever. It wasn't until 50 years later that our computers got fast enough and powerful enough that they could start answering questions about meaning of, of texts or pictures that they're shown. And I think it just turns out that for every two hours we spend awake taking in new information during the day, the brain just has to go offline for an hour. So eight hours out of 24 has to go offline for that time to figure out what the events of the day mean. Which ones should it keep? Which ones should it um, forget? Which ones um, should it keep all the details of? Which ones should it just extract the gist of? Which ones should it keep the emotional core of? Forget all the background information of. And it does all of that pretty much probably in the background, in our non-conscious mind as we sleep. But there's one task that it can't do in the background, that it has to do while the brain, while the person is conscious and dreaming. And that's trying to figure out how the events of the day might relate to sort of distant memories, older memories, less obviously related memories from our past. Why does it have to go offline for that? We're not sure, but we know that's true in Waking too. There's a book when, uh, entitled The Feeling of What Happens oh, by Antonio Damasio which talks about consciousness and waking. And he says that what consciousness gives organisms, humans in particular, is the ability to imagine scenarios, to construct uh, imagined futures, to construct narratives, and then to react emotionally to those imagined narratives. And that's how we plan. That's how we figure out what to do. So when you think about contacting someone to be on your podcast. You imagine calling them or you imagine writing them. You imagine what you would say to them and you say, okay, you know what? That doesn't sound good. What if I should probably say something like, and so you go through it in your mind and you construct, you know, you decide to go out to dinner. You think, where should I go out to dinner? And you don't just pull out a sheet of paper and pick the next one on the list. Pick a place that feels right. You imagine going there. You think about who you might go to, where you might sit, how long the wait is, what you would eat. And then you either feel good about that 
and you decide to do it. Or you say, oh, my God, there's going to be a three-hour wait at this time of night on a Friday night. I'm never going to get in. And so you roll back in and you create a new scenario and imagine another route. And Damasio argues that the brain can't do that offline. You can't imagine stuff in the background. Okay, You walk, you walk to the curb and you step down without thinking about it. Your brain sees the step down. It calculates the distance. It adjusts your muscles. So you seamlessly step off that curb without falling, and you're not even aware that you're doing it. That sort of thing the brain can do fine in the background. But if you're trying to decide, can I beat that car that's coming towards you, then you stop a moment and you think about it. So this is what consciousness gives us. Tomasio argues this is one of the great gifts of the evolution of consciousness, is we can imagine futures, we can plan futures, we can evaluate them and we can decide what to do. Yeah. So that's kind of why uh, we have to experience our dreams. We don't have like a parallel brain to simulate. There's only That's right. And yeah. so what the brain is doing, it's interesting. What the brain seems to be doing when we dream is to identify related memories often and especially in REM sleep, um, really sort of bizarrely, weakly related memories and then takes those and builds them into a scenario, into a dream, into a narrative with emotional reactions and evaluates whether this is in fact an old memory that might be useful. So I'll give you an example. I'm driving home from work one day. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. People dream, people do, people drive like madmen. And some, some guy runs a stop sign right in front of me. And I have to swerve out into oncoming traffic to avoid being hit, but there isn't any oncoming traffic, so everything's safe. And I go home and I tell my wife, I'm taking that job in Iowa. I can't stand driving here anymore. So that night I have a dream. And in my dream, I'm at an amusement park with my son, Adam. And we're going on the bumper cars, which we love to do, except today I'm not enjoying it at all. He's laughing and crashing into everybody. And I'm saying, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. And then I wake up from the dream for some reason and I laugh and I say, oh, this is about that accident I was almost in. Now, there's two interesting things about it. First of all, I don't replay the memory in my dream. When I wake up, the memory is right there. I can immediately remember the image of that car pulling out and all the terror and the, and the movements. Um, but in the dream, I don't replay it. I don't even reference it. When I'm in that bumper car, I don't say, oh, man, this was like that accident I was almost in yesterday. I just say, I don't like this. And I get upset. My brain, noticing me get upset, that's a funny thing to say, right? As if we were two people and we're not. But my brain, watching the reaction of its own invented sense of me, says, okay, Bob's getting upset. So in some way, this is probably important. I'm going to connect it. And then the brain literally strengthens the connections in the brain between my memory of the near-miss car accident and my memory of being at an amusement park on bumper cars with Adam. And now, if I don't wake up, I won't remember the dream. But those connections have already been strengthened. So when I get up the next morning... And my wife, Debbie, says to me, how are you feeling about, you know, everything after yesterday? And I said, you know, 
I realized, you know, I was thinking of bumper cars for some reason this morning. And I was thinking, you know, if that guy had hit me, he would have just plowed into the side, the drive, you know, the, the passenger side of the car at 10 miles an hour. It would have been a disaster for, for insurance. But I probably wouldn't have even gotten hurt. I mean, at the time, I thought I almost got killed. But as I think about, I don't know, why was I thinking about bumper cars? But, you know, it probably wouldn't have been such a terrible thing. And that's what the brain is doing. It's picking up these old memories to associate with the events of the day. So when you wake up, you'll have access to those as advice, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that would mean like emotions are super important for memory. If the brain uses emotions to decide which connections to keep. Yeah. And it could be positive emotions or negative emotions, right? But that's what emotions tell us. They tell us something of importance, something of potential value or threat is happening. That's what emotions are about. And so the brain says, okay, this is of value. Yeah, does that have like any implications on how we should learn or learning research in the sense that if we, if we don't care about something at all, then we just forget it? Yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. There was... A study once of some people who are wondering, you know, students do these evaluations of courses in college and all their evaluations get tabulated into these books that tell you which courses students say are good and which they say aren't. And they were saying, I wonder how much a student has to actually go to class to be able to make that judgment. And so they got some students as subjects and they showed them just one lecture from a course and asked them to rate it. And it turned out that they had the exact same distribution of of responses as from students who had taken it for the whole semester. And they said, wow, an hour is enough. And I won't go through all the smaller steps they took, but in the end they found that if someone watches a video of a class for 15 seconds with no sound, they'll rate it exactly the way students who took the course for the whole semester do. And what are they doing? They're looking. And if the, if the lecturer is saying, so you'll see in this next slide up here in the left corner, you, you see that that worm? That worm is a um, this kind of worm. Yeah. You're not going to learn anything. If they say, now check out that worm in the upper right corner. Can you see it? That guy is a, this kind of worm. And it does these amazing things that no other worms do. Then you're going to remember it. And teachers all know that. And lecturers all know that. And frankly, podcasters do too. If you get someone who talks to you for an hour in a droning voice, you don't want it not just because no one will be able to bear listening to it, but they won't remember anything from it either. Is there any like studies on how big this difference is? I'm sure there are. We know that um, if you give people a mixture of emotional and neutral words, they might remember two or three times as many of the emotional words as the neutral words. There are some studies we've done where we show people emotional slides and neutral slides before they go to bed and then test their memory the next morning. And they've forgotten most of the neutral slides and haven't forgotten hardly any of the emotional ones. I mean, that's what holds our attention. And what holds our attention is is what we what we encode in memory, and what, we de- what our brains decide overnight to keep. And then why, like, 
when we wake up is so weird. Why do we seem to forget everything, the dreams? Does that make any sense? Or It does. It does from a, from a basic functional point of view because the goal of the dream is just to form those new connections. And it does that in real time as we're having the dream when it identifies an emotional response. It connects the current event to the older memory so that it will be available to us after we wake up. And the other thing is it turns out that it kind of gets messy if you remember your dreams. Now, you have to know that you dream probably two-thirds of the night. In an eight-hour night, you probably dream for at least five or six hours. Now, imagine if your brain encoded all of that as memories and then tried to sort out which ones were dreams and which of its memories actually occurred. There's a sleep disorder known as narcolepsy, um, which is a genetic disorder or um, immune deficiency response, where amongst other things, not what it's particularly known for, but what definitely happened is these people wake up confused about whether their dreams had actually occurred or not. So we did a study of this after, uh, after Sleep Doc told us a couple of examples of this. I mean, I'll give you an example, the one he gave me. Um, a 12-year-old girl went to her brother and told him that she realized she could fly. In fact, she had been flying just before. And her brother said, you're crazy. She said, no, watch. And she threw herself down a flight of stairs, headfirst, crashed to the bottom, got up dazed, came back upstairs, and her brother says to her, what is the matter with you? And she says, no, no, I can do this, and throws herself down the stairs again. Okay? The dream not only was realistic when it happened, not only realistic when she woke up, but she confused it with reality and thought that she could fly. And then you try to think, well, okay, if dreams actually evolved before humans in primates or in that dog that we see kicking with its feet and, and, and you know, growling in its, its sleep, um, they're certainly not going to wake up and say, oh, 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 that was just a dream. I mean, they need not to remember it. And so I'm, I suspect that's where it, the, the failure to remember comes from. And I think that, that we do remember our dreams when we wake up out of them. It's sort of a freebie that wasn't planned. How old do you think dreams are? Like when did they first start evolving? Oh, Lord, Lord. Uh, well, let me ask you a question first. When did consciousness evolve? <laughs> right? It's, it's a subset of that question, and I would imagine that it evolved not long after consciousness did, because consciousness gave us that ability, gave animals that ability, and I'm assuming for the moment that animals are conscious, and we can talk about that in a minute, but it gave us all the ability to use that consciousness to plan and to foresee. And so that should have rolled right into their sleep dependent. We know that Rats, mice, maybe fish do sleep-dependent memory processing. So it's, mm. once they're into that condition, once they've evolved those mechanisms, there's no reason not to add dreaming to the mix. I often, I often baffle my students by telling them that there has been no scientific experiment ever conducted that has shown that humans are conscious. There's no way to show it. 
you know that you're conscious. So when I'm looking at you and talking to you and answering your questions, you assume I'm conscious. In fact, I'm just a, a construct on the computer with real good software to come up with excellent answers to your questions. And we know we can construct those, right? Yeah. We can construct them. They look like people. They have facial expressions. They, they express emotions. They give lucid answers. Which is one of the most weird things about dreams <laughs> when you have characters in your own head and you, <laughs> you, you don't know what they will answer, even though it's your own head generating them. So you should, you should talk to Tony too, because he'll talk to you about that conundrum of he loves so this lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is when you know that you're dreaming. Normally when we have a dream, we think it's real. Uh, sometimes we catch that and we say, oh my God, this is a dream. And some people who practice can actually start to control how they behave in their dreams. And Tony loves to ask the character in his dreams questions because he knows it's his brain, right? His brain has constructed this character in the dream. And his brain is going to decide what this character answers to this question. But Tony in the dream has no idea. It's a real, it's a real multiple, I mean, you, you know about multiple personality disorder, yeah, yeah. right? Um, we are all multiple persons when we sleep. There are these other characters who know other things. You know, you're lost. You ask them directions. They tell you how to get where you're, where you're going. You know, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. I love it. <laughs> it is a very... I was, when we were talking about lucid dreaming, so I read in the book, uh, uh, researchers made this protocol to communicate with lucid dreamers, like by shining flashes in their eyes and by having lucid dreamers move their eyes during sleep. Uh, how far is that research? Like, are there... We almost put in a paper that was submitted but not approved yet, and so we didn't. There have been people now... Uh, led by by Ken Paller in Chicago, but with the cooperation of, of a half dozen labs in four countries, I think, that are starting two-way conversations with people in lucid dreams. They've come up with better methods of teaching people to be lucid. So in Ken's lab, they can take just regular people who are only recruited on the basis of remembering their dreams They train these people to be lucid, and then they say, okay, I'm going to give you math problems. But when you notice that you're dreaming, when you become lucid, move your eyes back and forth three times to show us, okay, I'm lucid. Because while your body is paralyzed in REM sleep, your eyes aren't. So you move your eyes back and forth three times, and he says, okay, you're lucid. And then I'm going to give you a math problem, and I want you to move your eyes back and forth to indicate the answer. So if I says, what's five minus three, move them back and forth twice. Or it might be, if the answer to my question is yes, move them once. If it's no, move them twice. So if I ask you, if you know Spanish, what would you do? I don't know Spanish. So what would you do? I'd give two. So then they actually have begun having these communications. They can answer questions like, Do you know Spanish? Not having been prompted with it beforehand. They can do, what's five minus three? But how are the questions asked, actually? They're spoken to the person and they hear them. 
So, you know, we always have sort of assumed that language doesn't really get into people when they're sleeping. Now, we've known for a few thousand years that that's not true because every mother will tell you that when their newborn cries, even quietly, they wake up. So things get in. We know that often, you know, if there's a louder noise in your environment, it'll actually get into your dreams. Or odors will get into your dreams. Or rocking in a hammock will get into your dreams. That seems like now, I mean, you could have multiple people dreaming and communicating with each other, and you can make this like a collaborative experience or something. Um, in theory, there'd have to be a middleman, because the first person is just answering by signaling with their eyes, and the second person couldn't see that. And the second person can't ask, you know, at this point, any sort of complex question. You could imagine. So you can't ask complex questions because the only thing you can do is your eyes. Yeah, and but but the yeah you can't ask you can ask a complex question, you can't get a complex answer. Mm, yeah. So you can ask someone right if Bill is younger than Susan, and Carol is older than Susan. Is Bill the oldest of all? Signal one if the answer is yes, two if the answer is no. So you can ask complex questions, but you can't ask them, what's the best way to get from here to the bathroom? Not a particularly complex question, right? Uh, but couldn't you theoretically construct like some Morse code with moving the eyes or something? Absolutely. I was just going to say, you could, in theory, teach them Morse code and have them move their eyes. Left is a dash, right is a dot. Pause is a pause. But they probably probably couldn't stay lucid long enough to hold that together. Lucidity is kind of a, a knife edge. If you get too excited and pay too much attention to it, you wake up. And if you get too relaxed and don't pay enough attention to it, you drift back into dreaming without lucidity. So... In theory, absolutely. In theory, you could hold conversations with them. In practice, we're probably a long way from that. We're going to have to figure out a better mechanism, and it might have to be you know, a pharmacologic one, to keep people in, in lucid dreaming for longer periods of time. And why is it actually, like, why can we only move our eyes? Why, I mean, you could, I could imagine a way you could also move your face muscles during REM sleep. It wouldn't damage, like... It wouldn't interfere with anything, so, right? So, first of all, why are we paralyzed during REM sleep? And forever we didn't know the answer until people discovered REM sleep behavior disorder. If you have a brain disorder where that paralysis breaks down, and that usually ends up leading to Parkinson's disease, that's a precursor to Parkinson's disease. If you have this breakdown, you act out your dreams. And that isn't like sleepwalking. It's not that you get up and you go to the kitchen and you make yourself a peanut butter and chocolate cake sandwich. You know, you act out your dream. If you're being chased, you leap out of bed and you run into the wall. Or you run into the top of the staircase and fall down the stairs. Or you fight back and your partner, your bed partner, ends up in the hospital with injuries that you've uh, given them fighting off this monster or this attacker. So this, this, this paralysis evolved to 
to protect us from acting out those dreams. Could your face muscles have been left unparalyzed? Sure. And in fact, you can grit your teeth in REM sleep. That's a second thing you can do. But your brain didn't particularly know that we were going to do these experiments. And so it did a sort of slapdash. Let's just paralyze all the, all the voluntary muscles. Um, but we need the eyes for the rapid eye movements in REM sleep. Why? And don't ask me why we have rapid eye movements. We don't know the function of them. Some people think they, they add vividness to the dreams. Some people think they lead the dream scenario. Some people think they follow the dream scenario. Only happens in REM sleep, even though we dream in non-REM sleep as well. Um, in non-REM sleep, we dream often dreams that are indistinguishable, reading them from REM dreams. But we have no rapid eye movements and no paralysis and no non-REM sleep behavior disorder. So there's something very different about dreaming in non-REM sleep at the physiological level beyond just the eye movements. And we, we, we're not there yet. Yeah, and right, we have all these different sleep phases, like a couple of non-REM sleep phases and the yep, REM yep. sleep phase, and yep. the dreams differ between them. Yes, and the, and the neurochemistry differs between them, and the... And the brain activity differs between them. In some ways, it's not surprising that they differ. I just wonder, annoying question again, why? <laughs> like, why do we have different brain waves and different, like, why can't it just always be the same pattern like when we're awake? I think the reason is that a, a prime driver for the evolution of sleep was to create this offline state when the brain can go back and at a more sophisticated level review its memories from the day and, and create meaning in them. And so these different sleep stages might have evolved to put the brain in precisely the right state to do motor learning improvement, to do emotional memory improvement, to do simple fact improvement, to do pattern recognition improvement, Those are very different types of processes. You couldn't write one computer program that did them all. Right, right. That's interesting. So then I wonder, like, what about animals that have maybe different priorities? Do we see different sleep phases or different, they last different no, lengths? But nope, not that different. I mean, different species have different amounts of REM sleep out of their night. Some go up to 60%, some are down to 5%. We're around 20%. This is probably tuned by the balance. I mean, all animals, all animals learn motor skills. All animals learn visual skills. All animals memorize locations and routes. All animals learn associations. You know, they learn that the bell means that they're going to be fed, so they salivate, right? They can, be, they can learn that association. So all of these basic types of learning um, are the same. And is there, is there like any hope for dream research in animals? Because they can't tell us our dreams, their dreams. So There's no hope until we have a way to measure conscious experience. Okay. I mean, we can, we can make the assumption for animals that you make for me. You assume that I'm conscious with no medical or scientific evidence from me to convince you. We can assume that cats are conscious. 
and experiments have done where they have put brain lesions in cats to release them from that paralysis in REM sleep. And if you do that, when a cat goes into REM sleep, all of a sudden it rises up, it arches its back, it hisses, it reaches out and, and claws or it jumps. It looks like it's, it's, it's hunting. It looks like it's fighting. It looks like it's protecting itself. We can say that's probably what it's dreaming about. And it's practicing those things in its sleep. What, are we getting any closer to measuring conscious experience? That's two different questions. One is, if you assume that people are conscious, can we measure it? The other is, are we getting closer to seeing a, a true marker of consciousness? And I don't think we're anywhere close to a true marker for consciousness. Um, I mean, you know, physicians can work with people in, in coma and, and struggle and struggle and try to figure out whether any of them are conscious. But in the end, they wait for those few who come out of the coma who can remember a little bit from before they came out of it. It's not an insolvable problem. It's just one that we're really not very well attuned to. Now, if we assume that things are conscious, there's a group in, in Japan who has a subject sit in an fMRI or lie in an fMRI while awake and look at thousands of pictures, uh, hundreds of men, hundreds of women, hundreds of children, hundreds of cars, hundreds of buses, hundreds of kitchen appliances. And then they do this hyper-sophisticated voxel-based analysis, that sort of pixel-by-pixel pixel analysis of the brain's reaction. It says, okay, I showed him a hundred men. Here's the common pattern. This is the pattern of voxels that are active in his brain when he sees a person. And then they let these people fall asleep and go into REM sleep. And then they did the same fMRI while they were in REM sleep. And then they woke them up and they did two things. They asked the person, what were you dreaming about when I woke you up? And they go back to their computer and they ask their computer, what does it look like to you they were seeing before they woke up? And they're getting some pretty good matches. They get, you know, someone who wakes up and says, oh, there was a man and a woman and these two kids. And the voxel analysis, the computer analysis of the fMRI, which knows nothing about the dream report, sees a man and then sees a woman and sees a man and sees a kid and sees a man, you know. All right. So interesting, because theoretically it should be possible, right? So if we know enough about the brain to measure and know what someone is dreaming about? It could be. It could be because it turns out that when we dream, when we see something in our dreams, we see it exactly the same way as we see it when we're awake and looking at it, and exactly the same way as when we're awake and have our eyes closed. What do you mean in exactly the same way? Like the same patterns in the brain? or The, the same regions of the brain? So the visual cortex in the back of the brain is visual cortex. When you look at something, that lights up. Mm. When you close your eyes and imagine something, that lights up. When I wake you up and you were dreaming, that was lighting up. And then you can go down to this voxel by voxel. A voxel is a little piece of cortex, about one millimeter cube. And it's the exact same cubes of that visual cortex 
that are active when the person dreams about a man's face as when he actually sees a man's face or when she actually thinks about a man's face. So we're lucky that way. It could have been completely different parts of the brain, right? What do you think are like some of the most exciting new fields or exciting things in dream and sleep research today? So I think we've covered three of them. I think the concept of talking to lucid dreamers gives us a kind of access that's more solid than what, I mean, you know, we, we're always dealing with these reports, what people remember when they wake up. And we know that memory is not, you know, the most reliable thing. With these lucid dream studies, we're not asking them what do they remember. We're asking them what's, what, what's happening right now. So, so that, and, and that should let us, amongst other things, discover what sort of cognitive abilities people have when they're sleeping. You know, you, you can ask them questions about, you know, is pink closer to red or to blue? Can they figure out that question, right? Did the Red Sox win the World Series last year? Do they have that kind of information? Not do they have it stored in their brain. We can ask them that in the morning. But can they access it in a dream? Okay, so we can learn more about what the brain, what the dreaming brain is actually able to do within that dream context. So that's, that's number one. Number two is this kind of super technical fMRI imaging where we can start to see the activity of the brain doing various things. So that's visual imagery. But, you know, we can talk about emotions. We can talk about sounds. We can talk about math problems, you know. When that person does five minus two in a lucid dream, do they do it with the same brain regions that are normally used for math? We can learn a lot about that. And the third thing that I think is exciting, if a little self-serving, is moving towards a better understanding of the biological and evolutionary function of dreaming and trying to get evidence for this, this model, which we call Next Up, which is network exploration to understand possibilities, this putting together of associations to see if they look useful, not to answer a question directly, but to see if they seem useful and, and think about ways to explore that hypothesis and test it. So another, another line of research that's going on um, is being led by Adam Horowitz at MIT, and I'm working with him for disclosure. Um, but he's developed this, this little glove you can wear that has sensors in it so that he can know when you fall asleep or your phone can know when you fall asleep, and it can prompt you to dream about particular topics. It can tell you, as you fall back asleep, think about a tree. And it turns out to be incredibly successful. Half the time when people go back to sleep and then the device wakens them again, they were dreaming about a tree. So he's working with people at a VA hospital, looking at, at depression patients and looking at patients with PTSD to see if they can prime these patients to have kinds of dreams that will be helpful for them. Oh, yeah. And he's also looking at it in terms of cueing people with dream topics to, to enhance creativity. And it's actually shown that 
when he gets people to dream about trees that then after this whole 45 minutes of napping, falling asleep and waking up and falling asleep and being awoken again, he does these creativity tests and shows that they're more creative in thinking about trees than they are in thinking about fish. And there's, there's historical precedent. Um, Salvador Dali has written that he uses this exact technique of falling asleep, thinking about a topic, and then what he would do is he would hold a key over a plate with his arm on the arm of an armchair. And when he falls asleep, the muscle relaxes, the key falls, and it wakes him up, and boom, he's got this image, and he runs off and paints it. Or Thomas Edison did the same thing when he got stuck in the middle of trying to invent something. He would sit, he, I think he used metal balls in his hand, but the same thing, of, so that when his muscles relaxed and he fell asleep, they would drop and wake him up. And really, Adam has just recreated that in this high-tech sort of a way. And maybe, you know, maybe we can go to sleep with a problem, you know, the sleeping on a problem. Sleeping on a problem is a phrase that exists in all languages. Yeah, I just never heard it like that explicitly done. Like That's right. That's right. It's very funny. You know, in English, we say, I'm going to sleep on a problem. I'm going to sleep on that. In France, they say, I'm going to take the problem to bed with me. <laughs> Which strikes me as the quintessential difference between the French and the human. Men take the bed, take the problem to bed. They sleep on it, right? <laughs> so, so, but the point is that there is this sort of collective societal awareness that even without trying to, we wake up in the morning with with answers. It really works. And you know. I'll say one more thing. Sleep is just one of those basic biological drives, right? We get these cues for it. We feel tired. We can't keep our eyes open. We really want to lie down. It feels like we've got sand in our eyes, right? The sand man comes. This is just all the normal conscious cues that the body evolves to get us to behave in certain ways. So we eat when we're hungry, not when our body needs more nutrition. That's why we eat. But we eat because we feel hungry. We drink water because we feel thirsty. We have sex because we feel horny. Now, for all these other biological drives, we, so we understood the biological function thousands of years ago. I mean, 2,000 years ago, we knew what the function of sex was. We knew what the function of eating and sleeping, sorry, eating and drinking, we knew the function of maternal drives. They were all pretty straightforward. But as recently as 2000, Alan Hobson, a, a well-known sleep researcher, uh, was quoted as saying, the only known function of sleeping is to cure sleepiness. <laughs> so it's really only been in the last quarter century that we as scientists have been able to say, oh, look, Sleep serves a function. We do immune processing while we're sleeping. If you don't sleep the night after you get an influenza vaccine, you only make a, end up making half as many antibodies to it in your body. That's probably true, by the way, for COVID too. That if you're not getting sleep both in the nights before and after your vaccination, you don't produce as much antibody. If you're only sleeping four hours of sleep, you start looking pre-diabetic. 
and your insulin regulation goes off. So for all these different bodily systems, sleep is actually critical. You only release growth hormone during deep, slow-wave sleep. In adolescence, 90% of it is released while you're sleeping. If you're not sleeping, you're not growing. But all of this is new. All of this is in the last 20 years or so. It's really, uh, is it accelerating, you feel like, the sleep research now? It has been. It has been. And I, I know the sleep and memory. I actually keep a graph of the number of papers published on sleep and memory. And it's got a doubling time of just about two years, I think, and has been doing that for the last 20 years. That exceeds like the general science paper doublings. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's gone up. It's gone up hundreds of times in the last fold in the last 20 years. Wow. When I was in college, DNA had just reached that point. And I remember a professor saying, if you look at the rate of growth of publications in the field of DNA, by the year 2000, a single edition of the Journal of Molecular Biology will weigh more than the Earth. But I suspect... <laughs> I suspect that rate of growth will curve over. So, so the sleep and memory, the dreaming, dreaming is just starting to, starting to rise. The sleep and memory has gone up exponentially for at least the last 20 years, and I don't see it curving over yet. Yeah, and you started like a long time ago and we knew almost nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's been a... It's been a great ride, I'll tell you What that. were like the most surprising or like unintuitive findings that you really didn't expect over like the course of your career? I think it's this, the breadth and intensity of the memory benefits. So the first memory benefits that were conclusively shown were for this task of learning to see these diagonal bars in your peripheral visual field if it was flashed quickly. And I sort of knew it was going to go further than that, but it turns out, well, I told people at the time, I would have been happy if you got as much improvement over an eight-hour night as you got over a 16-hour day. That, to me, would be really exciting. But it turns out you don't get any better at all across the day that all the improvement is at night. And I think that's overall the most surprising thing, that there are so many types of memory processing that seem to be happening exclusively while we're asleep, that they just don't happen otherwise. And there are these important ones, like deciding to hold on to the emotional core of event and forgetting the details. That process, which seems to occur only while we're asleep, is what defines who we are. If you think back about who you are, you sort of go through your autobiographical history, your memories, and it's memories of emotional moments in your life. You don't say, oh yeah, I remember that time I sat waiting for a bus for 15 minutes. That's not what you remember. And that, that mechanism that holds on to those emotional core events and the core details of them, that's a sleep-dependent process. Without that, there might be no, no you, no memorial sense. You know, your autobiography would have been like that of Bugs Bunny, who wrote, "I was born at a very early age." You know, and there wasn't much more than that. Um, it feels kind of weird to me because, like, I, it feels like I'm not in control, right? The brain just decides by itself when I'm sleeping. 
what to remember, what not to remember, what I mean, it checks my reaction to it, but still. It, yes, but you could just say that you are, of course, just a sub-circuit of your brain. So, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, this is that totally confusing thing. But yes, it is not based on conscious decisions. I mean, think about how many times in the last week, to be simple, you have said to yourself, ooh, I want to remember that. Probably none. You're more likely to say, oh, I'm going to remember that and just know you are. We trust ourselves, right? You've had this experience of driving a car and suddenly realize that you don't remember anything about the last five minutes of driving. I used to have this game I play when I drive to work. When I pulled into the parking lot, I'd remember to ask, oh, how many red lights did you catch? And I'd have no memory of any of the lights. I was doing something else when I drove to work and counting on my brain. Is that similar to dreaming, like these times we space out if I'm walking to the bus or something and then just don't even remember anything? I was just spaced out and daydreaming. Excellent. Ex- I mean, what did you call it? You called it daydreaming. Excellent, excellent question. And we don't know the answer yet. There is more. Aaron Walmsley, who was a postdoc of mine, is now down at Furman University, um, has decided to devote herself to the kind of processing, this kind of background memory processing that's actually happening while we're awake. And it's actually surprisingly a much younger field, but she's seeing it there too. And my guess is you're going to find, yes, that when you're daydreaming, when you're walking along, you know, just, just getting there, not thinking about anything in particular, your brain is doing this too. And there's a whole brain network called the default mode network. It's a whole brain network that kicks in when you're not paying attention to anything in particular. And that brain network is involved in recalling past memories, in imagining the future, in spatial mapping, in theory of mind, and understanding what other people mean or meant by what they say and do. Um, All those things are active whenever we're not paying attention to something, which makes, which makes me worry, by the way, about the current generation, which is never alone with their thoughts. Right. right. If they're alone with their thoughts for 30 seconds, they pull their phone out. They actually can't stand being with their thoughts. Because, of course, like in a marriage, if you've only got 15 minutes a day to spend together and talk, it's entirely consumed by all the shit in the relationship, all the stuff that you have to get through, and you don't get to the fun, good part. Um, you got to spend more time together to do that. That's why I go on vacations with them. So that's a whole other area, not of sleep research, but related, which is what, what is our brain and our mind? Because, you know, when we daydream, we don't do day background brain non-conscious processing, which we're doing also. But we're daydreaming. We're imagining scenarios. We're imagining things that could happen. Sometimes in a useful way, sometimes just in a fun way. Sometimes replaying past things to see where they went wrong, how they could go better in the future. Every every moment that we're not paying attention to something, that we're not actively consumed by doing something. And I don't mean just doing something, but actively consumed by doing something. We're either asleep or daydreaming. 
probably 16 hours a day at least. Yeah, we have no, yeah, right. And now, now that everyone has like, you're always on our phones and everything, there's always something to do. I wonder, we don't even know if we're losing anything very important or if we're not, or if... Although we know that those kids are having twice the depression rates, they're having higher suicidal ideation, they're having all higher anxiety, Gribing them to the active consequences of being on their phones. And fun, and thank you, Jonas, I've never had this particular thought before, they might be barking up the wrong tree. It might not be the active consequences of being on the phone all the time. It might be the passive consequences of not being off the phone. There is something to think about when you're not thinking about anything. Are you still researching? So what are you or what are you up to actually? So so some of it is just helping create a public awareness of the importance of sleep. I think that's happening now. It's been happening for the last five years or so. But it's still still a lot of people who feel that you know caffeine is as good as as sleep. We need to learn that it's not. Um, there has been I, I mentioned Adam Mamalak and his Dormio um, glove that can be used to manipulate sleep onset dreaming. Turns out advertising companies have taken notice of this and want to start using it as a, a form of advertising. And they wouldn't have people wear gloves. Um, but do you happen to sleep with your phone in your bedroom with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Every day. Do you do a do you do a hard shutdown every night? Do you know what it's doing while you're sleeping? I assume uh, hopefully nothing. <laughs> That's right. That's what you hope. Um, but within the next decade at the most, that phone will know whether you're asleep or not. It'll know when you've been asleep for just a few minutes. And it can play anything it's been paid to play. It seems a bit too invasive, right, to be true. It seems like some apocalyptic world. Well, all you have to do is Google uh, Coors Beer and Super Bowl and Dreaming. They paid people to dream about Coors Beer the night of the Super Bowl. And they did it with pre-sleep and during sleep cues to prompt you to dream about it. And lots of people signed on. You know, they got a coupon worth 50% off on a 12-pack of beer, of course. And if they got somebody else to sign up too, they got the 12-pack for free. Because, again, that advocacy piece, they don't think dreaming about Coors is anything but a silly thing to do. But do you think it's like a serious, it could be a serious risk in some form? So we know from a study, not ours, that if you play the word M&Ms over and over again while someone's sleeping, or Skittles, half and half, and then ask them to rate how much they like each of them in the morning and how much they'd be willing to pay for each of them, for a package of each of them in the morning, whichever one was played during their sleep, they value more, want more, would pay more for we know that that works. 
And don't think Skittles and don't even think the fact that Coors Beer was actually trying to addict people to an addictive, destructive, life-ruining drug by using a technique that the individuals didn't realize had the potential of affecting their later behavior. Don't think Coors Beer, don't think Skittles, think Donald Trump. Donald Trump only needed to sway a particular 75,000 votes in 2020 to have won the election. So if he could have, with sleep prompts, swung that many votes in a half dozen states, that's where I worry about it. It's scary, but I feel like, wouldn't there be like a riot if people's phones would suddenly start speaking when they're dreaming? Well, if it did it well, they'd never know. So we would like the FTA, the Federal Trade, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to give us a ruling banning it. They could ban it in advertising. I don't think they could ban it in political campaigning. Um, I mean, it's 1984, almost precisely, except instead of giving them a drug, they're giving them pre-sleep and within-sleep prompts. Okay, I hope, <laughs> I hope that never happens. Although I am interested in actually... Well, using it in creative ways, which blurs the lines. Like if I could have some stories or some engineer my dreams. Oh, listen, first of all, it's a technology. It has wonderful uses. It has horrible uses. But there was a survey taken in New York, I think just last year, at an advertising executive conference. And I think the number was 70% of those present said they were hoping to try this technique in the next three years. Yeah, people are interested. I mean, I'd be interested. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, for example, you know, imagine if you could actually learn foreign languages this way. Imagine if you could learn all sorts of things with this kind of prompting. Imagine if you could decide, um, you know, I want to work on my relationship with my significant other tonight. So I'm going to think about stupid pastrami sandwiches before I go to bed, because that's what he always serves me, you know? And it actually works. Or what if you have PTSD and you could, you know, you could prompt yourself with, think about fighting the bastard off, right? And change those dreams. That'd be amazing. I read a bit about that there are some techniques of like visualization when you're awake. Yeah. And then you try to change the narrative and it's... It's it's called dream scripting. It's re-scripting of nightmares. And it works. And it works. Um, But it's a technique that's used very consciously. It's usually done with the help of a therapist and it takes a while. This is real fast and dirty and cheap. And it doesn't require your cooperation. And there's no known uh, disorders where you don't dream? Of course, we can only talk about disorders where you don't remember dreaming. And those are all ones that involve stroke damage. There's no, no. There is a question, there remains a question of whether there are some people who don't dream. But in general, if you take people who say they never dream and you bring them into the laboratory and wake them up out of intense REM sleep, they'll say, oh my God, I was dreaming and relate a dream. Here's a little tidbit for your listeners. If you're someone who never dreams, here's how you can dream tonight. Ready? Three large glasses of water before you go to bed. 
Not beers, because they suppress REM sleep. Water, because then you're going to wake up four or five times during the night to go to the bathroom. You'll tend to wake up from REM sleep. That's where it's easiest. And you'll remember dreams. And if you want to keep those dreams, lie in bed when you wake up, keep your eyes closed, don't move, and just replay the dream in your memory, and that'll lock it in so you can remember it in the morning. When people ask me, how come I never remember my dreams? I say it's because you fall asleep quickly, you don't wake up during the night, and you wake up in the morning with an alarm clock. And they say, how do you know that? Because that means you have no chance to remember a dream. It's not about dreaming. We all dream at least half, probably two-thirds of the night. We just have to wake up out of the dream to remember it. And then we have to wake up slowly and pay attention to it, or it gets forgotten. Why is it even possible to practice like remembering? Because if you write them down, you'll remember the next night, like more dreams. Why would that I would be tell you, yeah, a thing? I would tell you one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done as a teacher is in a course on waking, sleeping, and dreaming, I tell students, I want you every night this week before you go to bed to say five times, I'm going to remember my dreams. I'm going to remember my dreams. It's embarrassing for me to ask this of you. It will be embarrassing for you to do it, but it'll actually work. That's, that's crazy. It's crazy in a way. No, it's just totally crazy, right? Because it's not going to increase how much you dream. It's going to increase your remembering them when you wake up. And maybe what that really does, and we haven't looked at this, what it really does is it sort of locks that in your brain so tightly that when you wake up in the morning, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And so you don't leap up and then... If, if you wake up in the morning and do as little as roll over to grab a pencil and paper, you probably lose half of your dream recall just from that little bit of motor activity when you wake up. A motor activity interferes. Yeah, and, and so does sensory. My wife will sometimes wake up and say, Bob, I just had, oh shit, where'd it go? Oh my God, I woke up and I remembered this whole dream and it's gone. And yeah, that's why an alarm clock, you won't remember your dreams. Well, that's sound and that's movement all piled on top of waking up. Um, you want to wake up slowly. You want to hang in that space between awake and asleep. That's why weekend mornings are the best time to remember your dreams. You tend to sleep later, tend to get an extra REM period, more intense REM period. But you also just wake up and you're just lying there. And that's what does it. It's funny, when I was a kid, like I, I used to have like all these terrible nightmares all the time. And then what I do is just before I went to bed, I told myself just on repeat, like tonight I won't dream, tonight I won't dream, tonight I won't dream. And every time I did that, I, I didn't dream. There you go. So you can run it both ways. And again, to be precise, you didn't remember any dreams, which is all you cared about. Yeah, it felt yeah. great. It felt empowering. So those are all studies that need to be done, right? Right, right. What is it about telling yourself before you go to bed that you are or aren't? This is the first time I've ever heard someone who did it to not remember dreams. How effective is that really? How much of this, this is sort of folktales? 
And I wonder, like, when we dream, is there some kind of people researching or that have discovered, like, what the rules of the dream world are sometimes? Because scenes can change, people can change, but some scenes seem similar, but some things seem, like, impossible. One person can be two people yep. at the same time. And yep. Are you going to talk to... Are you going to talk? Are you going to talk to Tony? Are you planning to talk oh, yeah, to Tony? Sure. Zod? Okay, sure. because he's he's more deeply into that level of research. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there's there's the normalcy of dreams. There's what we usually dream. Yes, I have been both myself and somebody else at the same time. I have, without being lucid, I have rewound dreams that I didn't like how they were going, and started them over with an altered script not aware that I'm dreaming, just sort of, that, isn't that what we always do when we're awake, is rewind the tape and replay it from earlier? I guess not, but it seemed normal then. Um, and then there are people who do studies, the little, little online groups of lucid dreamers, who, for example, ask the question, can you walk through a wall? And there's this wonderful report from one of the members of the group who said, so I was walking down this hall when I realized I was lucid, and I remembered that I wanted to see if I could walk through a wall. So I turned and I ran full speed into the wall and crashed my head and bounced off and ended up on the floor. So then I got up. What was the second thing? And I, um, I tried to just walk through it. And I just hit the wall and sort of bounced off again. And then I sort of walked up to the wall and put my hands against it and very slowly leaned against it and fell right through. So that might have just been him. It'd be interested if 10 people tried it, and that's what worked for all of them. We know from lucid dreamers that if you want to change the scene, you can change the scene, not by just deciding. So I can tell you to close your eyes and imagine being in Paris. And even if you've never been there, you can sort of imagine being in Paris. There's the Eiffel Tower. You're walking up to the Eiffel Tower, yada, yada. You can't do that in a dream. If you say, oh, I'm lucid now, I want to be in Paris, you'll still be in your bedroom or wherever you are in the dream. You can open a door and walk through it and be in Paris. If you're outside, you can walk around the corner, around the building at a corner, and be in Paris. Or you can spin around in place and stop and be in Paris. So it appears that if you want in a lucid dream to change the setting, you have to break the visual image of where you are now. So there's that kind of research that's going on too. But that's mostly, that's not funded. That's not science research. Those are just people asking good scientific questions um, in a sort of uncontrolled way. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there are some rules that govern the dream there's world. There's got to be rules. Right. So, for example, you can have transformations you can have these bizarre transformations in a dream where something turns into something else and we actually studied that one and it turns out it's not random they turn into related things but they're related in form so a fireman never turns into a fire truck in your dream but a fire truck might turn into a police car and a fireman might turn into a surgeon but a surgeon won't turn into a scalpel. I don't know what it would be. Um, you know, we've had we've had reports of uh, of an ATM machine turning into a video game. 
that right so so the transformations are never predictable but they're um, that is to say you can't say okay what's this atm machine going to turn into and guess successfully but when you see the pairs if you take the pairs apart and throw them all into a pile people can pull out the ones that go together oh the atm machine goes with the video game right oh the river goes with the pond right the mountain goes with the fire tower. So there's things that, that share physical properties. It wouldn't be a mountain and a fire tower. But So we, we know about things like that. We know some of the rules of the bizarreness of dreams. Is there a lot of debate in the dream research community constantly? Like are there different thought groups that don't agree? Or how, how much like, consensus is there? There's no consensus. There's... <laughs> I mean, there's no consensus um, even about whether dreams evolved. I mean, there's one guy who wrote a book, and I'm happily blocking his name, um, who said that we dream because evolution forgot to turn off our consciousness when we fall asleep. That it's just an accident. It has no function. It has no purpose. It's more like your heartbeat, right? Your heart didn't evolve to make a sound every time it beat. But it does make a sound. And you can hear the sound and you can feel the sound. And a doctor can use that sound to good effect. Mm-hmm. But the brain, but the body didn't evolve to make that sound. And some people feel that way about dreams. The brain didn't evolve to dream. It's just a byproduct of, you know, the evolution not bothering to turn off consciousness. At night. What's the strongest like counter argument against that? Hard to say. I mean, I would say that that the dreams have such a unique and specific form. I mean, it it doesn't just reflect. But well, I mean, in a way, my model would say that dreaming is what happens when the brain does a certain kind of memory processing for which it needs to be conscious. And his model says the brain dreams when it's doing a certain kind of memory processing and it doesn't even need to be conscious. So that's the difference. And like I say, we don't even have evidence that you need to be conscious when you're awake, just a lot of anecdotal evidence. I mean, consciousness, you know, dreaming is a subset of the consciousness problem. Every problem that exists about discussing consciousness sort of exists in spades for for dreaming. It's that and a little bit worse. Because you can say, well, if you're not conscious, I mean, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't, you know, you can't communicate. I mean, obviously you have to be conscious. And I can say, well, yeah, but, you know, it didn't have to evolve that way. David Chalmers is the one who raises the concept of a parallel universe without consciousness. And everything seems to work just fine. So... The way I describe consciousness is that it's an accident of evolution that turned out to be useful and so it was kept. But that evolution could have gone another way. I mean, what actually needs to be explained about consciousness? What is like the thing we're trying to explain? The hard question is how does inanimate matter, presumably in the form of a highly organized brain, produce conscious experience so how not why how how is that i mean why is an easy question compared to how we have no clues about 
How? None, none. We have theories. Uh, Roger Penrose decided, a mathematician, decided that it had to do with microtubules in the brain. And he had this whole quantum mechanical explanation of it. And I, I referred to that as a conflation of ignorances. The theory being, we know nothing about consciousness. We know nothing about quantum mechanics. They must be causally related. And, and there's some truth to that. If I imagine... If I say, can you imagine an encyclopedia that got large enough that it became conscious? You might say to me, you mean like a paper encyclopedia? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, a paper encyclopedia, like, but with you know, thousands of volume, build, filling building after building. And you'd say, no. You can't imagine that being conscious? You'd say, no. What about if it was in a computer? And you'd say, oh, well, then maybe. And the maybe is because you don't understand the computer. When you think about the print encyclopedia, there's no degrees of freedom left that you don't understand. There's nothing in there mm -hmm. that could hold a mystery for you. Well, what if we used red ink instead of black ink? No, Bob. I mean, that's, you're not going to get a conscious paper encyclopedia. I mean, just the word conscious is so... Well, but it's... It's not that it's something that's ambiguous to us. I mean, the edges are totally ambiguous, right? Just like when is a person still awake and when are they now asleep? You know, when is a person alive and when is a person now dead? Consciousness certainly has that sort of a, a murky edge. Yeah. But we know when someone's dead, dead. And we know when someone's alive, alive. And we know when they're awake, awake and asleep, asleep. And we know when they're, con I mean, you're conscious. There's no question about it. And you experience things. You have awareness. You have consciousness. I mean, you experience the world around you. You know that's not what your iPad does. A big enough computer you might wonder about. I mean, I might wonder, why might I not wonder about, let's say, our galaxy? There's all these stars getting reborn and sending matter between each other and all these things. Like Absolutely. Conscious or? Absolutely. In fact, I had someone who for a while argued with me quite seriously that he thought modern day Coke machines were conscious because they receive inputs, they analyze their internal state. This was at a time when Coke machines were talking to you. Now, I'm sorry, I'm out of that one. Would you like to try this? They seem to have emotions. Why do we say they're not conscious? Until we know what consciousness is at the physical level, what the physical state is that creates consciousness, we can't rule out Gaia being conscious or the universe being, science, being conscious. Stars, there's a Frank Herbert book. Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, has a book about stars that are conscious. Um, why not? We don't have anything, we don't have any knowledge that allows us to rule it out. Right, and the problem that needs to be solved is kind of, yeah, why don't we go through the world like when we're dreaming with no uh, no control or no no feeling of control? Is that the problem? That, no, that's a separate question altogether because you're suggesting we'd still be conscious, but we wouldn't be in conscious control of our actions, right? 
That is to say, we wouldn't decide to do things. When you walk down the street, you never, ever, ever said to yourself, okay, I just put down my left foot. I better pick up my right foot, right? You walk down the street. You're conscious that you're walking down the street. You decided to walk down the street. But at the level of motor activity, you certainly didn't decide, okay, I'm going to fire some alpha motor neurons in the left trigeminal nerve to get that left foot off the ground. Most everything, dangerous thing to say, most everything we do across the day, we do without direct intent. I'm not sure even what I mean exactly by that. But when I start a sentence, I don't know what words are going to come out of my mouth. Right? That's one of those things you just don't even want to think about. But it's very different than like when we're asleep and dreaming. Then we're... Yes. Yes. So the whole prefrontal cortex is shut down when we're asleep, especially in REM sleep. And we know that the prefrontal control is... Prefrontal cortex is involved in executive control and decision-making um, and impulse control and all of those things that are sort of metacognitive. You know, when we think about thinking about ourselves, when we think about deciding something, when we're actively deciding something, that's a part of the brain that shuts down when we're asleep, shuts down even more, shuts down some throughout the night and a lot more in REM sleep. So those mechanisms... But those are, those are a subset of, of conscious functions. Oh, and if you remove our prefrontal cortex, we remain conscious. Um, it's not a very happy consciousness, but, you know, we're conscious. You have, to go, you have to go into the midbrain and the brainstem if you really want to knock out consciousness. You can knock out consciousness in people and they'll still can do stuff? Or? Well, no, no, no. Well, no, then the, the, those are strokes and they go into coma. So we do know, as far as we can tell, that people who are unconscious don't have visual perception, even though their brain registers signature electrical activity if you flash a light in their eye. But we don't know how far that processing goes, but it doesn't reach consciousness, right? Yeah, what's interesting to me is like that there's certain parts of the brain that you can turn these off and then it's not conscious or you these kind of combinations and then it's conscious and that suggests there is some, I don't know, something real physical that you can turn on and off. Yeah. So you should read Damasio's book, the, the, feeling, of, the feeling of What Happens, you know, which talks about this. And he argues that what consciousness is, is it's this ability to imagine scenarios and to have feelings. And to have a sense of self experiencing those imagined scenarios. And then he looks at the parts of the brain where strokes lead to coma. And he says those are the parts of the brain that allow you those functions. A sense of body. If you lose the parts of the brain that let you feel your body, if you totally lose those, you become comatose. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he's right, but he is. You can take out all the parts of the brain that makes humans quote humans and they're still conscious i mean you might not be able to take them out all at once but people who have had destruction of every part of the cerebral cortex remain conscious without exception right right i mean 
how far we haven't done it, but how far do you think we could go with that in the sense there's all these thought experiments like this consciousness dispense, for example, on physical space. Let's say you take your brain and just extend it over kilometers and it's the exact same thing. Like, would you be conscious? <laughs> or So one way to phrase that question is, what is it about the brain that results in it being conscious? Okay. It might just be the connectivity between the nerve cells, in which case you could replicate it in silica, right? You can make a computer that has it. It might be, as Roger Penrose suggests, the microtubules and the axons of all our nerve cells. Microtubules are little chemical tubes that proteins move through to get from the cell body out to the ends of the nerve cell. And that's, those allow some mystical quantum correlation over distance that results in consciousness. It might be that there are certain chemicals present in certain combinations in nerve cells that cause consciousness. It might be, who knows what, that's the problem. And I, I, I tell, again, I tell my students, sometimes I think that, you know, in 10 years, someone will figure it out. And when my grandkids grow up, they'll say, wait, this wasn't obvious to everybody. <laughs> people were actually looking for it and didn't think to look, oh, gee, it's inside the pillowcase. That's where the pillow is. I mean, what was, so I think it might turn out like that, but then I fear it might turn out like my imaginary two Greek philosophers on the shore of the Aegean Sea trying to explain thunder and saying, you know, there's no God Zeus who's making thunder. Thunder is a physical phenomenon in the world and we should be able to figure it out and the answer is wrong they shouldn't be able to they have to figure out about what sound is they have to figure out about sound waves they have to figure out that when gases expand that produces a sound that when you heat gases they expand that lightning is produced by this phenomenon called electricity which they wouldn't figure out until Benjamin Franklin came along, that electricity actually is energy. When it passes through air, it heats the air, and that causes the air to expand, and that produces a pressure wave that hits your ears and causes the sound of thunder. I mean, they were thousands of years from having the scientific knowledge they would need to answer this apparently trivial question. You're right. So which of those is consciousness? Don't have a clue. Do you have any personal hunch? No. I'm just going to be pissed if it happens the week after I die. <laughs> Okay. This might be a good way to end it. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was very nice having you on. I, I had a lot of fun. <laughs>